of these songs that we have sung not just to you but to each other and Lord truly we ask that you would speak as we approach your word in a few moments that God you would plant it deep in us that you would bear fruit in us for your glory Father we uh, don't just lift up ourselves this morning we pray for other churches in our region we uh, thank you for uh, churches out um, in the Clifton area. We lifted up Clifton uh, Baptist Church in weeks past. We lift up um, Clifton United Methodist Church. Lord, we know that the Methodist Church is going through uh, so many changes as many uh, churches are leaving the denomination to become independent congregations. Would you give them grace, Lord, as they work through such issues, Lord, that you would be glorified and while we would differ in doctrine, Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified in all your churches, that you would be lifted up and that you would be magnified. And so we pray for the Clifton area that, Lord, you would uh, work in and through that community as well. Father, we pray for um, other churches in our network of churches. We think of Rivertown Grace Fellowship down in Conway, South Carolina, uh, a plant from Taylor, South Carolina. Uh, we thank you for what you're doing in and through them as they uh, are a new church, that you would strengthen them. Thank you for the leaders that you've brought them and for the fellowship that they are in the network. Uh, so we pray for them this morning, that you would give them grace in that area of South Carolina. Father, we pray for the persecuted church as well. Uh, we know that in many places that uh, your people are being imprisoned and even murdered because of the gospel. And while we do not uh, experience that um, as common here in the West, uh, we are told by your word to uh, pray for those as if we're enchained with them. And so we lift up the persecuted church in Burma this morning, that you would be with them, that you would guard and protect them. Lord, those who are on death's door, that you would give them strength to persevere till the end, that they in their death would glorify you as they have called been called to um, suffer and take up their cross uh, and follow you just as you told them. And so while they might feel alone in this moment, Lord, um, by your spirit, would you encourage them that churches around the world are praying for them and for their deliverance, but also for their uh, deliverance into your hands if you choose to take them. So Father, we lift the persecuted church to you. Lord, we pray for uh, those that are unreached, uh, this morning we lift up uh, the people of Afghanistan, Lord, that you would bring the gospel to them, that as a nation in turmoil, as the Taliban has taken control once again after uh, Western powers left there a couple years ago, uh, Lord, we pray that your gospel would continue to spread. Uh, we've heard good news of even while there was foreign occupation, that the gospel was able to flood into the streets at a greater rate uh, because of the Taliban's lack of control. But now that it's returned, these uh, Christians, that uh, some who grew up with a relative um, taste of freedom have now uh, are experiencing persecution. So would you be with those believers, Lord, in Afghanistan? And particularly uh, those who have special needs like the deaf, Thank you for the work of many missionaries that are seeking to put um, the gospel into sign language in Afghanistan. And Lord, we pray that you would bear fruit and save many uh, of the deaf in Afghanistan. So we, we lift this unreached people group to you. Father, we lift up um, the many places around the world that are in trouble. We know we just turn on the news for a moment and we see trouble everywhere. We think of um, the, the news that just came out of Sudan and many that have been killed there uh, afresh in the uh, struggle that is going on, not just in Khartoum, but in the Darfur region. Um, would you, by your grace, protect your people, um, that the gospel would go forth and that evil would be brought to justice? And so we lift that situation to you, the coups in West Africa. We think of the war in Ukraine. Uh, the war in Israel and uh, Palestine, the Gaza Strip, Lord, that you would give grace in all these ways, that you would raise up your church to share the gospel, Lord, that in the complicated situations that war brings, that you would do the amazing redemptive work that only you can. 
and that you would bring beauty out of the ashes. And Father, that you would comfort those who have lost loved ones and that you would drive many to your merciful cross. Father, we pray for our military and those who are uh, serving, uh, particularly for believers, Lord, that they find uh, a lack of uh, encouragement at times, that you would give our chaplains in the military great wisdom in ministering to the troops in all areas uh, of the armed forces. So we lift them to you. Father, we thank you for our government leaders. Uh, we do uh, thank you that we live in a relatively free country. And while uh, we have uh, just a, a lack of trust at time in our own leaders, we are instructed to pray for them, that you would draw them close to you, that those that don't know you would come to know you. We pray for our president. We pray for uh, those in his cabinet. We thank you for Mike Johnson being elected as Speaker of the House and that you would uh, give him great strength uh, to lead well. Father, we thank you for your hand on this country despite the fact that we do not deserve it. We are guilty of much, and we ask that you would humble us and that you would help us to trust you, that, Lord, you would triumph over evil and that we would be um, a great um, nation that is able to send out missionaries to the world once again. And, Father, that you would um, just undergird uh, your people uh, in all places. But, Lord, here in our country, we lift um, our country to you that is hurting. Father, we lift up the presidential elections next year. Uh, we ask that you would uh, show grace in those ways as well as you bring forth uh, the individual that you would have to uh, be voted on. And then even then, Lord, we know you are sovereign over elections, and so we trust you. Father, we pray for those who are grieving. We continue to lift up the Reed family, Lord, and the loss of Sarah's mother. As it's been a few weeks that you would um, help the... Uh, the whole that they feel uh, there to be filled by your grace and by your uh, church and the friendships that they have, Lord, that you would encourage them. Father, we lift up our expectant mothers. We thank you for Sarah Furches, uh, Lord, that you would be with her as she approaches uh, this next month uh, the delivery of their child. Lord, we thank you for this precious one. We thank you for uh, health. We pray that you would... Um, help there to be no complications in delivery at the end of this third trimester. We thank you for the Furches family. We pray that you would provide for them, encourage them, um, uphold them, Lord, in this busy season. Father, we thank you for Whitney, Lord, as she's expecting as well. Thank you for this precious one, that you would wrap your arms around this child, Lord, as uh, you form this child um, into uh, a beautiful baby. Lord, we pray that as uh, you are working that, that there would be no complications, Lord, that there would be a safe delivery many months from now, and we pray uh, that you would be with Whitney and Brian, Lord, and uh, their children, Lord, as they wait expectantly for this new member of the family to arrive. Lord, we pray the same for uh, Sarah Foster, and thank you for this child in her womb and just the joy uh, a new life is. We pray that you would uh, undergird her as well, Lord, and that you would bring a safe pregnancy and a a wonderful delivery. So, Lord, we thank you for these. We thank you for new life and what you're doing uh, in the lives of our families, Lord. Father, we pray for healing for Christina Graviel. Lord, as she's going through um, her treatment and even getting scans today, would you give her grace, Lord, as she approaches her surgery at the beginning of December? God, would you Give Paul and, and Christina grace, Lord, in this time of suffering, that, Lord, you would form them, you would help them to lean on us as a church, God, and that you would give strength to Madison, their daughter, and their son as well, Lord. Um, and I just pray that you would, um, again, um, put your healing touch upon her. Lord, would you do what only you can do, and yet we'll trust you, that, Lord, you use even suffering to bring about uh, amazing uh, glory to your name. And so thank you for Christina's attitude through this. It's, it's humbling, but it's an instruction to us all. Would you strengthen her, we pray. Father, we pray for Dean Mundy continuing to battle Bell's palsy, that you would bring healing. And Lord, would you um, be with my friend Ryan D'Amato, Lord, as he has uh, uh, turned away from more treatment and hospice has come in as he uh, gives himself over to this uh, brain tumor. 
uh, God, would you take him into your arms, that uh, there would be uh, as little suffering as possible. Lord, we thank you for Ryan's life. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you that he's ready, that he is redeemed, and um, he is done fighting this battle. God, would you usher him in and give the family grace. We pray for Kim and the children, that you'd be with them. Father, uh, our hearts are, are aching when we see people suffering in this way, but we know that you know what you're doing and that we have an eternal weight of glory. So be with this family, Lord, as, as uh, Ryan faces his final days. Lord, I pray for John Cordy. Thank you for uh, continuing to give us good news uh, about John and his esophageal cancer being uh, apparently in remission. And thank you for these wonderful scans and the encouragement that's come to all of us, to Grace Taylor's, their home church, but also um, to all of us in the network. Thank you for what you're doing in John and Bethana, Lord, that you would undergird them and, and provide for them. Finally, Lord, we pray for those traveling and uh, we pray too for Christ alone. This morning, we pray that you would encourage Christ alone as they enter their second year here at the beginning of the year, as they're working on a new fiscal budget, uh, that you would give them grace. We pray that you'd raise up leadership for Christ alone. We pray for Tim, that you would give him great endurance. Um, and for Cindy and their, their health issues, that you would help them to trust you in the midst of this. Thank you for growing that church. We pray that you would add more saints uh, to her and give them great wisdom, we pray. Father, thank you for our time. Lord, would you be with our brother Jarvis, Lord, now as he brings the word to us this morning. Would you be glorified, not just in the preaching of your word, but our obedience to it as it bears fruits in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we have the privilege uh, to have Jarvis Singleton with us. You uh, have a bio of him in your bulletins. He is not a stranger around here. If you've been around here long, each fall we welcome his update from South Florida. Uh, Redeeming Grace Church is uh, celebrating, uh, going into their sixth year, right? Five or six years. Yes, going into their sixth year. And so we are excited to see what God is doing. He gave a report in Sunday school. If you missed that, we recorded that. So uh, you can watch that on uh, our Facebook page. Um, and we're just grateful uh, to have Jarvis with us and what a joy it is for him to take time out of his schedule uh, to come uh, and share with us what God is doing in South Florida. Brother, I'm gonna have you come now and bring the word to us. Well, good afternoon, every, good morning, everyone. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It is always a pleasure to be here at the gathering and a blessing to uh, give a little to you of what you have given to myself and to our church. And we send greetings from West Palm Beach. And I love coming up this time of the year because as I've told some people that by this time, it's usually climbing back up to the 80s when we do have cold weather down there. So it's nice to walk out at two o'clock and it'd still be chilly. That's always a joy uh, to have. So, and I've also heard some wanting to, me to bring my family, however, they're not gonna come in this weather. So I guess that's sacrificing in marriage um, to possibly come up one summer and instead of packing a jacket, packing shorts. So anyway, <laughs> um, again, praise God for all of you here. Uh, let's uh, get into God's word together. Um, I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I want to apologize to the, um, to the um, sound guys. I have to tell them, I didn't tell them what version I'll be reading from. It'll be the New American Standard uh, 1995 version. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And we will um, then pray and then get into God's word. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 and 2. This is God's holy word. This is God's holy word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Amen. 
May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Uh, my topic today will be the blood that elects. The blood that elects. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, again, this time that we can gather as, as believers. And, and, and Lord, we thank you, Lord, that um, whether the church is in West Palm Beach or whether it's in West Jefferson, North Carolina, we can all gather and love on each other and share in the reminder of the great gospel that you have given us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, speak to us through, as, um, as the song said a few moments ago, speak to us, Lord, through your word. Um, reveal your truth in us. Reveal your truth in general, Lord, to us, Father, especially when we deal with this topic of your sovereign election, which is uh, very controversial in the church. But Lord, let your word be true. Let every man be a liar and ultimately build us up again in your grace and mercy through this message. Lord, give me the words I ought to say. Hold back anything I ought not to say. Let everything that is said again be for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Within the scope of Christianity, there are many doctrines, again, which people have a deep love and fondness for. For example, uh, teachings like the Trinity, uh, the substitutionary work of Christ, and the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures, when properly explained, often bring a sweet joy and happiness to the souls of those who sit under and are constantly reminded of the reality of their truths. However, on the flip side of this, there are many doctrines which, again, have a love-hate focus. And at the very top of this list is the doctrine of God's sovereign election. In essence, for the many people who hear this doctrine and find joy, comfort, and rest within its truths, there are many who hear it and it causes them to exhibit anger, and in some cases, disgust towards those who hold firm to what it teaches. For example, in my time in the Reformed faith, I've seen opponents of this doctrine respond really in one of three ways. One of three ways. Number one, they may lash out at the one teaching it, claiming that they are making God unfair or unjust because he doesn't provide salvation to everyone. Secondly, they may try to redefine the doctrine by saying that God looked down the corridors of time, saw that some people would choose him, and thus he based his choice on election from this. And number three, and admittedly this is a new one that I've heard over the past several years, some would claim that those who believe in sovereign election are of a different religion. In fact, I recall one young lady that I know making this particular claim, claiming that those who are a part of, in her words, that elect group, that they're basically a cult. But whatever side you're on or whatever your feelings pertaining to this doctrine, there is one thing that cannot be denied, beloved. Election is in the Bible. It is a teaching that cannot be easily dismissed. So thus, it is our calling as Christians to not only understand what the scriptures have to say about it, but when we do, to submit and to believe what we discover. So today, we're going to take a journey to do just that. And in turn, we will also see how this doctrine links to the topic within our text, namely about the blood of Christ and how it accomplishes our salvation. And thus, this is the outline that we're going to follow, which consists of two main points with three subpoints under the main points. So again, and it's there on the screen for you if you want to uh, jot, down, jot it down. But we're going to look at two main points that have three subpoints. Number one, I want to take us through some basics of election. Basics of election. And number one, I want to talk about how it's unconditional. Secondly, how it's eternal. And then thirdly, how it's definite. So again, we're going to look at some basics of election. We're going to look at how it's unconditional, how it's eternal, and how it's definite. And then third, not thirdly, but secondly, sorry, we're going to look at the benefits of election. And this is where we're going to actually get into the text, the benefits of election. Number one, we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Secondly, we are sanctified by the Spirit. We are sanctified by the Spirit. And then third and finally, we get to obey Christ. We get to obey Jesus Christ. So that's the outline that we're going to be following for our time together. So let's start by looking at the basics of election, the basics of election. 
Now, before we dive into the three subpoints under this main heading, I would be irresponsible of me to not define our terms up front. So to do so, let me ask a simple yet extremely important question. As you recall, this past week, many people went to the voting polls to uh, elect officials and measures in regard to their community and state. Now, here's the question I want to ask. In doing this, what did these people essentially do in making their choices? What did these people essentially do in making their choices? Well, beloved, what they did was they chose or select candidate or select a candidate or measure from a group of other candidates and measures. And beloved, that is all election is, okay? In short, this isn't rocket science. This isn't trying to figure out a Rubik's Cube here, okay? To elect something means to choose or to select something out of a group of other available things. And in the Greek, the word for election, eklektos, carries the same idea. In fact, here's the definition for that word. Eklektos, again, the Greek word for election. It means to choose, select, chosen, or selected. Secondly, it also means by implication, meaning chosen, with the accessory idea of kindness, favor, and love, equivalent to that, to, excuse me, equivalent to the cherished and beloved. So thus, the doctrine of God's sovereign election simply teaches that God has chosen or has selected certain people out of the mass of humanity to pour his love, mercy, and grace upon them by saving them in Christ from his wrath and giving them the gift of eternal life. Here's a similar definition from Dr. Wayne Grudem. He says, election is an act of God before the creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now, beloved, I gave this information to make it clear that there is no difference, again, at least in this case, between the way the Bible defines this concept and how we use it in everyday life. Beloved, some of us may not like what sovereign election teaches, but it doesn't change the fact that God does sovereignly elect people for salvation. So thus, in our ignoring it or rejecting of this truth, it doesn't abate God's actions. In essence, we cannot stop God from doing what he does just because we may not agree with what he does. Again, he is God and we are not. So with all this said, and with our word properly defined now, let's look to the first of our three subheadings under this point. And we're going to look first at how election is first unconditional, how it is unconditional. In our passage, Peter says that God's elect are, quote, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, it's important to note that this word foreknowledge is one that many critics latch on to to attempt to prove their point that God, for example, looked down the corridor of time and made his choice based on what we would do. Again, their argument goes as follows. God knew ahead of time that some would choose him, and that is why he elected them to salvation. However, this argument has two major flaws, two major flaws. Number one, the word for no in this instance, based on the Greek, coincides with those times where in the Hebrew, they use an equivalent word, rather, to define the word love. So in essence, the word no in our passage connects with what we see, for example, in Genesis 4.1, when we are told that Adam knew his wife Eve. So therefore, this verse is not speaking on how God has some sort of knowledge beforehand about people and what that would do that would cause him to choose them, but rather it is speaking of God placing his love on individuals before they were born, thus earmarking them out for salvation. And carrying along the same point, here's a second argument against the critics' understanding of this verse. When we look at this verse, there is nothing that we see that tells us that God knew anything about those whom he chose. It doesn't tell us that God chose them because they were smarter. It doesn't tell us that God chose them because they were more obedient, they were more loving, or they were more self-righteous. 
This information is intentionally silent, beloved, thus fueling the idea again that this word foreknow has a different meaning than how we would normally use it. One of the best examples that we see in scripture which really fuels this particular truth is found in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. I'm actually going to invite you to turn there because I want you to look at this verse. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And it's here where Paul speaks on election and he uses the example of Jacob and Esau. So again, that's Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. I had in my notes just to read it to you, but I was like, no, I think we need to look at this verse. <laughs> so Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, and we'll start there. So this is God's holy word. And it reads, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Now listen to this next verse. For though the twins were not yet born, and had done nothing good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, close quote. Now, beloved, notice how Paul goes out of his way to explain how God elected Jacob over Esau. He said the decision was made before, quote, the twins were yet born or hadn't done anything good or bad. And he says that the choice was done so that God's purpose, according to election, might stand not because of works, but because but based rather on his call. So Paul is making it clear as day that God does not look down some corridor and make his choice of people based on them choosing him. Equally, his choice was not based on smarts, obedience, love, or self-righteousness from the person who was elected. And we know that from this passage because guess who was the more self-righteous son? It was Esau, not Jacob. <laughs> no, beloved, God's choice was based once more that his purpose according to election might stand. That is, so his sovereign choice and plan might come about in the way he originally designed it. Again, when we say that God's choice of individuals was unconditional, we are saying that God simply decided out of his good pleasure that he would choose a people. He would save them through Christ. And these people would be beneficiaries of his love, his grace, and his mercy. We contributed nothing to God's plan or his decision, beloved. It was totally based on his desires and his sovereign purposes in spite of who we are and what we've done. And now moving on, here's a second basic of election. We talked about how it's unconditional. It's also eternal. It's also eternal. One of the interesting aspects of what this doctrine teaches is that election is consistent with God's being. In other words, beloved, because he is eternal, this means that his choice of individuals for the purpose of salvation is eternal. Beloved, here are these following passages, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 and 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Here's another one, 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul says these words to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And finally, we have Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 29. And Paul says these words, for those whom he foreknew, there's that word again, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So, beloved, what we're seeing from these verses, from these verses is this. Election was not some plan that God made up on the fly. When the first Adam sinned in the garden, it didn't cause God to scramble and say, I need to come up with a backup plan. No, before the foundation of the world, beloved, God selected and God procured the salvation of certain individuals to be redeemed in the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ. Now, I know that in hearing this, it opens a Pandora's box of theological questions. Questions such as, if God preordained the salvation of certain people, then what about those who are not elected? What happens to them? Do they suffer God's eternal judgment and wrath? And if so, doesn't this make God unfair or unjust? Well, beloved, in an effort not to sugarcoat the truth, to answer the question, if those who are not, do, if those who are not elected suffer the eternal judgment and wrath of God, the answer is yes. Yes. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 9, 21. Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make the same lump of one vessel for honorable use and the other for common use. Again, God has earmarked some people to save and the others he simply leaves alone in their sin and they ultimately perish. However, in saying this, we need to answer the second question. Is God unfair? Is he unjust in doing this? And the answer to that question is an emphatic no. No. In essence, beloved, for those who end up suffering God's condemnation, it is important to realize they suffer it because they willingly have rebelled against the creator. Or to quote Jesus from John 3, 19, they love darkness rather than light. In short, those who are not elected face God's judgment because of their own sinful choices. God decides to not extend them saving grace, which, by the way, he's not obligated to give any of us. That's why it's called grace, unmerited, undeserved, and unprovoked favor, thus leaving them in their sins and to suffer the consequences as such. Beloved, let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about here. Let's take, for example, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Did Judas betray Jesus because God made him do so? Was it because he was, just a, he was just dealt a bad hand in the journey of life? No, beloved, G Judas betrayed Jesus because Judas wanted 30 pieces of silver. He saw that money as more satisfying than following and devoting himself to the Savior. Or what about Pharaoh in Exodus? What about Pharaoh in Exodus? Why did he refuse to let God's people go? Was it because God forced him to keep them against his will and then punished him for such? No, beloved. Pharaoh did not let God's people go because he thought he was God. He was the most powerful man on the planet, and not only did he know it, but he had a ball letting everyone else know it as well. Or what about Pontius Pilate? What about Pontius Pilate? Did he crucify Jesus because God forced him to do this against his desires? No, beloved. Pilate crucified Jesus because, again, not to sugarcoat it, he was a weak and timid man. He wanted to be a people pleaser instead of being a true leader. He didn't want to deal with the backlash of the Jewish people starting a possible insurrection and him potentially losing his job because of it. So thus he gave the people what they wanted, namely a Lord crucified on the cross. And to add more seasoning to this point, let me ask this question. When is the last time we accused God of being unfair or unjust when it came to him not saving the people of, let's say, Sodom and Gomorrah? Or what about the Egyptians in Exodus? What about the Philistines? What about Queen Jezebel? Or even the giant Goliath? 
Or how about Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Fidel Castro, Saddam Hussein, or Osama bin Laden? No, beloved, when we talk about these people, when we talk about these groups, let's throw Hamas in there as well. When we talk about these people in these groups, we often say that they got what they deserve from the hand of God because of their evil deeds. Amen? You don't have to say amen. I know you feel that way. <laughs> okay? So why is it any different for others who also and rebel and defy the authority and rule of the sovereign God? How are they any different? What allows them to change the narrative? So, beloved, in the final analysis, here is what we have. Everyone, both the elect and the non-elect, they ultimately get what they want and what they deserve. For those whom the Lord placed his grace, his love, and his mercy on from all eternity through Christ, they will want salvation. They will want to experience the love and fellowship of God. They will want the gift of eternal life and its blessings, and that is what they will receive. And those who are not elect, they will get their independence from God. They will want the pleasures and acceptance of the world. They will want the, to rebel against the creator, and thus they will receive what they deserve. And thus, this is why you'll never hear an unbeliever say, well, I really wanted to be a Christian, but God wouldn't let me. And you'll never hear a believer say, I wish I could turn away from grace and go back to sin and damnation. Again, all of these things were set from eternity and they play out in such a way where God is not the author of sin and is not unfair and unjust in any of his actions. So again, God's choice of election is one he has made from all eternity. And this now gets us to the final point in our basic look at election. Namely, it is definite. It is definite. In short, for those whom the Father has chosen for salvation, they can find peace in knowing they will never lose this gift. They will persevere and be preserved in grace. Here's how chapter 17, section 1 of our 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is entitled The, Persever the Perseverance of the Saints, this is how it puts it. It reads, quote, those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved, because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, he still brings about and, and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from, for, excuse me, from them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, where they will enjoy their purchased possession. For they are engraved on the palms of his hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Close quote. Beloved, that is an amazing statement. And in many respects, it answers a load of questions that one may have about the security of their faith. For instance, this section of our confession answers how we are kept safe as we handle difficulties in our lives as believers. Again, it reads, even though many storms and, and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. And it even deals with how we're protected in those seasons where we may be overrun by the sin in our lives. It reads, the felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation where they will enjoy their purchased possession. Beloved, to put it directly, there are two ways we can rest assured that our election is definite. 
and we said both previously in this message. Number one, because God has planned it from all eternity. And number two, because our election is in Christ. As Colossians 3 tells us, Christ is our life. So, beloved, the only way a believer can lose their salvation, and by the way, this is both illogical and impossible, is if Jesus decides one day to sin against the Father. If he, like Satan, decided one day that he wanted to be like the Most High. And, beloved, the reason why this scenario is both illogical and impossible is because in being the Son of God, he is and has always been the Most High God. In short, Jesus is not going to demand nor crave a status that he already has. Beloved, remember his words from John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Even when he took on human flesh, he was still 100% God, just as the Father and just as the Spirit. And from all eternity, he has never stopped being equal in godliness and transcendence with him. John 1.1 reads again, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And beloved, not only is he God, but he has now been highly exalted in glory after he accomplished his perfect work of redemption for the elect. And now he sits at the Father's right hand, the place of power, ruling over all things, both in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So again, Jesus has nothing to rebel or desire for, because as God, he has everything. In Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So unless you miss my point, here's what I'm saying, beloved. Your salvation is secure. It can never be taken away from you. Again, if you are one of God's elect, as this confession tells us, you can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. But rather, you will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. When it comes to his elect people, God preserves them and they persevere in Christ. And they do both of these things to honor God just as much to bring glory to his name as well. Now, with these basics of election stated, let's now come to the second part of our message. And here's where we're going to see how the blood of Christ plays a role in this act of God. And to start, we're going to deal with that point from Peter's words as we look at these three benefits of sovereign election. The three benefits of sovereign election. The first benefit that I want to speak on that we see in our text is that we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Let me read this text again. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled by or with his blood. Now, it should be stated that this language from Peter of being sprinkled with his blood, it's not foreign to Scripture, but rather it harkens back to when Israel received the law from Moses on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. In fact, let me read this account from Exodus 24, 3 through 8 to you. It reads, he, that is Moses, came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, and the, all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain where 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as, a peace, as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Then the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now listen to this next part. So Moses took the blood and, sp and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words, close quote. 
So thus, by sprinkling the blood on the people, Moses was doing two things, two things. He was affirming the covenant made between God and the people. And number two, and just as important, he was sealing the people to their promise that they will do what the Lord has spoken. In essence, if they disobeyed what God said, then the blood, in essence, was on them. They were to pay with their lives. In short, obey and live, disobey and die. And in our passage, we see both a similarity and a difference here. We see a similarity in by sprinkling the blood of Christ on his elect, God is affirming his covenant with them, which he made from all eternity. However, here is the big difference. Namely, it was Christ himself who took on the call to do what the Lord has spoken. And he did so, by the way, successfully. Here is what he says to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, 4. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And thus, when his blood is sprinkled on the elect, they are no longer under a covenant of works, a covenant which gives the command to obey and live, disobey and die. But rather, they are under a covenant of grace, a covenant that says it is done in Christ. He has died, so therefore you may now live. In essence, beloved, what the sprinkling of Christ's blood means to the elect is that God is pleased with our obedience to him because our obedience is found in the work of Christ. And equally, it also tells us that the wrath against our disobedience is satisfied. Why, you might ask? Because it is found in the work of Christ. But more than anything, beloved, it points to the fact that we are in covenantal union with God. The blood of Jesus ratifies it. And unlike the one cut at Sinai, it can never be violated because all that the Father has required within it has been already met through the Savior. Christ is the elect surety. Christ is the elect's guarantor. Christ is the elect's security. And all these things find their root and truthfulness in his shed blood. So therefore, if you are one of God's elect, know that you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ and know that his blood has sealed you in grace and God is in covenantal union with you. And once more, it is a covenant which cannot be broken because all we need to keep it has been found in the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. However, this is not the only benefit we see in this text. But next, we see that another benefit of election is we are sanctified by the Spirit. We are sanctified by the Spirit. Again, let us read our text. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, before we start this point, it's important to note that this word sanctifying in this verse, it isn't speaking of definitive sanctification. That is the declaration and gift which the elect receives from God that they are free from sin through the sacrifice of Christ. But rather, what this is speaking of is what's called progressive sanctification. That is the daily dying from sinful thoughts, words and deeds that go through, excuse me, that we go through in our living a daily life. The late zero Dr. Spiro Zodiades in his complete word study of the New Testament defines this word in our text simply as the resultant state, the behavior befitting those so separated. And beloved, when we think about Peter's words here, we find they are a natural response to God's selection process. In essence, if Christ has shed his blood for the elect in order to deliver them and to free them from the power of sin, then it only stands the reason, beloved, that the results of this blessing will produce the proper fruit in a believer's life. Beloved, one of the reasons why we know a banana tree is not an apple tree is simply because it grows bananas. Okay? 
is a simple cause and effect. When God draws his elect to him, he gives them his spirit. And thus, through the power of the spirit, they will not only come to hate sin, but they will look to crucify it for the purpose and desire of living in holiness and being shaped in the image of the Savior. You know, I've often said that one thing I'm looking forward to when I get to glory is not to see streets of gold or land flowing with milk and honey. It's not going to be the joy of getting away from the sufferings and evils of this world. And it's not going to be the emotional moment when I see my parents, my nephew, or other family members and friends who have gone ahead of me there. No, beloved, the one thing I'm looking forward to the most when I get to glory is living as a perfect being. I want to know what it really is to live like Christ or to look like Christ. I want to know how it is to not have a sinful thought, not to say sinful things, and not to do sinful deeds. I want to know how it will be to worship God without any of the hindrances within myself which plague me while I'm here on earth. Things like being tired, being unmotivated, being ashamed, being ashamed to come to him because of a sin I've committed. Beloved, this is what I'm looking the most forward to when I get the glory. And beloved, in the end, this is what all of God's elect have to look forward to. On this side of eternity, God will grant us the privilege and, and pleasure, rather, of giving us snapshots of what this will look like in our lives. They will see themselves overcome by sins. I mean, excuse me, they will see themselves overcome various sins. They will see themselves conformed in their thoughts, their words, and their deeds in a way that will reflect their deliverance. And believers will see themselves desiring more and more the things of God over the pleasures of the world. And all of these things find their root in the truth that the blood of Jesus has won our sanctification. Sin and its entanglements have no problem I mean, have no power, rather, to hold them back from the righteousness that is theirs in him. Again, the blood of Christ has defeated our sin. Again, beloved, the ultimate goal for God's elect is glorification. And if you are a believer, and if you are one of God's elect, our Lord will achieve his plan in you. Beloved, I know the concept of being holy is a foreign one to our minds, but it is the path that our Lord is leading his people on. If you are one of his, one day you will be made like Christ. One day you will be free from the physical hold of sin. One day you will be presented before Christ without spot or wrinkle. Beloved, this is the Father's great desire for you. And as we know from Psalm 115.3, he is a God who does whatever he pleases. And yet there's still one more benefit from being, for being elected in the blood of Christ. And this is a precious one. You know, we also get the benefit of obeying Jesus. We get the benefit of obeying Jesus. One more time, let's read our text. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, looking at this last point, there are two things which come to mind. First, for those whom God has elected to salvation through the blood, they are guaranteed to come to faith. In short, God's elect at their appointed time, and that's very important, at their appointed time, will answer the call to come to Christ by grace. God will not fail to save anyone whom he has selected to be a part of his people. So in John 6, 29, when Jesus says, believe in the one whom the Father has sent, through the Spirit, the elect will obey that call. They will forsake all things and they will follow Christ. And in many respects, this truth is not one that should be really shocking to us at this point, because in being the elect, this is the very purpose which God has called his people to. In essence, they are the elect because they are called to obedience. 
God has chosen them to obey the call of Christ to salvation. This was why they were pulled out of the world and its system of operation, to obey God like man was originally intended to do. And this now leads us to the second point we can take from Peter's words. Namely, not only are the elect called to obey the call of salvation, but again, they are called to obey Christ in their practical lives. They are called to obey Christ in their practical lives. In fact, this is how they express their love and joy for the salvation that they have. Our Lord says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Beloved God, he uses his elect to show his goodness by empowering their obedience to him. And the way he accomplishes this is by reminding his people what he has done for them through Christ. You know, as most children, when I was little, my obedience to my parents was mostly done out of selfish or self-sustaining reasons. Okay? I would often be a good boy because maybe I didn't want to get a beaten, or I didn't want something I liked to be taken away from me, or I would want them to buy me something, and I would try to use my obedience as a bait to get what I wanted. Okay? Now, don't look at me strange, because we all have done that, okay? <laughs> However, as I got older, as I got older, beloved, and became an adult myself, something very unusual happened. I found that I still obeyed my parents, but it was now done out of an expression of what they had already done for me. For example, I would do things like call and check on them. Since my mom lived in Florida with me, periodically, I would take her out to lunch. I would help plan family gatherings that would honor her. I would take her to run errands or do errands for her, and even at times, I would help her out financially. And I did these things not because I wanted something in return, but because I received so much from them in my life. Beloved, as unbelievers, we try to do everything we can to bait God into giving us what we want. We'll come to church when it's not inconvenient for us. We'll do nice things for others. We'll consistently pray our wish list. We'll try to clean up things in our lives so that we, that we believe that God wouldn't like. And again, we do these things from a sinful and selfish disposition. However, beloved, when God opens our eyes to the beauty of our salvation, when he shows us our bloody Savior hanging on Calvary's cross, and he reveals to us that he is there to pay the penalty for all of our sinful and selfish dispositions. When he reveals to us that this should have been us, but because he chose us as vessels to shower his love, his mercy, and his grace upon, he spared us from his wrath and decided instead to put, on, put it on his perfect son, when he reveals to us that through this act, we now have a definitive position as righteous before him, and he has brought us into covenantal union with him, a covenant in which he promises to bless and preserve us until he completes his work in making us into the very image of our Savior, and thus brings us into his heavenly kingdom where we will kneel in his presence and give him all the glory and praise due to him for what he has done. Beloved, when these things, we understand these things, and more blessings are revealed to us because of what Christ has accomplished through the shedding of his blood. Oh, beloved, we can find that when God tells us in Luke 9:39 that Christ is his beloved son, listen to him, here is what our response will be. Yes. Yes, I will listen and obey my Savior. And I will do it with all my heart. I will do it with all my soul. I will do it with all my mind. I will do it with all my strength. For all that my Lord has done for me, I am honored. I am pleased to serve him in obedience as a way of saying thank you. Thank you for him being obedient for me, even to the point of dying on Calvary's cross. Oh, beloved, when the believer understands what they have been given in their redemption, when they understand what Christ has accomplished for them through the sacrifice of his blood on their behalf, obedience to Christ now becomes a glorious thing to do. 
and it becomes glorious because in being obedient, it becomes a constant opportunity to tell the Lord, thank you. Thank you for all you've done for me. Thank you for being my substitute. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for shedding your blood and removing God's wrath and anger from me. Thank you for bringing me into covenant union with you and granting my eternal life and my place in glory. Oh, beloved, God has chosen to do some wonderful things for his elect, and he has sealed these blessings through the shed blood of Christ. So, beloved, if you are a believer and you think of your salvation, don't allow the trickery of Satan to make you think that your election is a wicked thing. But rather rejoice in the truth that God has given you a salvation that is unconditional, that is eternal, and that is definite. And because of this, he has given you the privilege of being sprinkled with the blood of Christ that you are being sanctified in the spirit and you get the absolute pleasure of obeying our Lord. And beloved, when you think on these things like that, here's one thing I can guarantee you will have ringing as joy in your heart. Namely, these words from the apostle John from 1 John 3, 1. These are the words you'll have. See how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we can be called children of God. Amen. Now let's spend a few moments just meditating and thinking um, about what God has spoken to us today and how and ask him to apply these things to our lives. Our ushers come forward for the morning's offering. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning that has come to us by your very spirit and help us to rejoice in this great electing love that ultimately took you to the cross, that you went to the cross on our behalf. And how awesome these truths are, Lord, that you have done this for your people. And yet the joy of knowing that we can be proclaimers of this great truth as your work of redemption is not yet accomplished. There are many more who have not yet heard. And as your word teaches, how can they respond unless they hear? And how can they hear unless there is a preacher? And how can a preacher go unless he is sent? Lord, what a joy as we looked at this passage that the obedience that is purchased even by Christ, you are accomplishing your work in and through us. What an amazing joy as we who were once sinners 
once assaulting your throne in vengeance and anger are now dining with you and proclaiming you. Lord, what a joy that is. Lord, as we have sung, as we have listened, and now, Lord, as we give, we pray that you would take these funds for the furtherance of the gospel ministry, to the relief of the poor, to the provision for the saints, to uh, missionaries, to uh, all that you have called us to manage your funds, Lord. We know that you don't need it, but Lord, you call us to give. So you want us to be like you, who gave his only son. Father, help us to have wisdom in what is received, uh, in all that we need to do as a congregation that you have instructed us in. Lord, would you help us to give cheerfully and sacrificially and purposefully for your purposes, for your glory, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.